This is Trevor Hicken, and uh, welcome to the Talk to You Later show. <laughs> of course, I have Alex uh, joining me. Yeah, the bonus episode for this week on the Very Hicken Bros podcast. Yeah, we had a couple long articles with uh, topics we thought were interesting, and we didn't want a uh, podcast to go on too long. So we're recording this after recording another podcast. The um, we don't have a name for it yet, but it's a <laughs> spiritual <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, so Alex is going to start with his topic first. It's uh, these topics are not as simple as a normal topics, so. His is diving into what is quantum internet. And then I will, after he talks about his article, I will dive into what's the operating system of a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. It's uh, not as astrophysics-y, but it is related to astronomy (laughs) and (laughs) the study thereof. Yeah, Trevor needs to end the topics... uh as I was always thinking about outer space. Yeah, my head's always in space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, recently I've been talking about uh, alternative and new developing uh, platforms. Like Microsoft is investing in software as a... Uh, service and that's not traditional business method and uh, I talked about uh, Atari last podcast about them exploring a uh, blockchain for their business and the next thing that's going to be uh, exploring is uh, the quantum physics and its application to establish uh, quantum internet this quantum internet is similar to internet but it's different understanding it relies a lot on fiber optics and light so yeah the internet is yeah the internet is basically access from all over the world to the same files it's kind of a way to we all have access to the same thing and uh, the quantum internet is very it's like in the very very beginning of quantum internet (laughs) the range so far is about uh, 85 around there's an article in the article said that the the maximum distance they they haven't figured out yet is <laughs> yeah it's 60 miles apart or something so the range is not global yet <laughs> but uh hmm so but what this is uh <laughs> let me explain quantum physics 
you have light particles and you could develop uh, relationships with these particles by with different characteristics of these particles hmm okay so now I'll explain this this is guy named Eden Figueroa he is a professor at uh, Stony Brook University and he's been collaborating with the Brookhaven National Lab I don't know where that is at I forgot to write it down but uh, the article that I was looking into was published on Discovery it's I don't know how big a publication that is the writer visited Eden and he said in order to have internet he didn't really say internet he said in order to have teleportation <laughs> yeah you have to have uh, qubit you need to have quantum memory and you have to have um two uh, entangled particles yeah in order to establish this you have to have a, a series of mirrors to guide these light particles and what happens is that it's the light particle which is a blue high uh, frequency high energy um, photon it's ran through a crystal that splits it in half so that one particle becomes two particles but they have to position the mirrors to make sure that it is the same frequency and make sure it's the same particle because ultimately the reason why it's entangled is because it's the same particle but there's two of them yeah and it sounds like you've learned a little bit about quantum physics yeah entanglement isn't it like uh one one particle is when it's entangled both of them act pretty much at the same time doing uh, I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I, I, I'm assuming they both move and do the same thing. Yeah, they're just particles, so they don't really do anything. But what's interesting is that they move these particles and put them into something called memory. It's kind of like a capsule. Um. Eden Figueroa, the guy that uh, was interviewed, he actually invented this before in order to um, move apart the two particles they had to, because you have to keep them synced in order to maintain uh, entanglement. They used to have to freeze them and slow down the particles <laughs> that way. But uh, Eden... He developed this memory, this quantum memory capsule. It's filled with trillions 
of rubidium atoms. Hmm. So when they put the second of the two um, particles into this capsule, it's able to maintain the same frequency and be in sync with the other um, particle that it's entangled with. Because if you're out of sync, it doesn't work. You, you're not entangled anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this memory part is really key. In the film that uh, the person at the Discovery website put together, it showed that they're driving over to Brookhaven with the memory capsule and they're able to separate the two particles and they were able to shoot the qubits. Qubits are quantum bits. When something happens to one particle, the same thing happens to the second particle because they're the same particle. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand. Okay. Qubit stands for quantum bits. And the way that quantum bits have been able to put data onto one of these uh, entangled particles, they also call them detectors. Yeah. The particles, they have something called uh, polarization. And they have, you know, how data is written out. It's in zero and ones. Mm -hmm. What happens is that with light, if you shoot light through a slit of paper, only the particles that have a vertical, if you're um, shooting with a vertical slit, only the particles with the vertical polarization go through. <laughs> and... Okay. To, so those particles can go through and they exhibit a pattern onto the detector. And there's a horizontally polarized uh, um, particle. They, can't, they don't go through and they bounce off and go another direction. Mm -hmm. So these detectors... They observe, I'm not sure, but the verticals might be ones and the horizontal qubits might be zeros. So when they imprint or these uh, qubits towards the, the main detector entangled particle, it uh, receives the data and it instantaneously is received on the other end because they're the same. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like a way that you could send a message. <laughs> you you put the data onto your particle that you have. You say a message. In the other end, they say they see the exact same thing. So that's a way that you could send a message through these entangled particles. And it's kind of like instant messaging. <laughs> yeah. Literally, that's the f that's the first uh, development kind of in quantum internet. Yeah, it's funny. 
it's like restarting from scratch the hello world and <laughs> when back in AOL everyone was on AOL messaging this is very promising because unless there's like no way that you could get the same entangled particle so if you have your entangled one and you give the other entangled particle to your wife and I don't know how mobile these things are, <laughs> but uh, if you send the message to it and she'll get the same thing instantaneously, there's no other way that you could intercept that because there's no waves or anything connecting those two particles. It's just the two particles are entangled, mm-hmm. just getting data from these qubits. So there's no hacking. Yeah. Super secure. And yeah, the only way you can get hacked is that if they get the particle and put messages on it or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe they uh, entangle their own particle somehow. Yeah, it is possible. Because there's, like I was saying before, they have, like, you know, they have the four-minute mile barrier where you think it's impossible to run further than the four miles. It's like the same thing. There's, like, a 60-mile limit. There's, like... You can't bring these two entangled particles more than 60 miles apart without them going out of sync. So one way that uh, Eden is thinking about bringing it beyond the 60-mile barrier is that maybe you could... You know how substations where you could kind of like boost them along? I, I don't know how to explain it very well, but maybe you have an entangled particle you move it down and you have another entangled particle maybe like 50 miles away mm-hmm. and then you have somehow you swap out the two entangled particles <laughs> you you entangle the particle with the particle that's at that substation and then you bring that particle further down so it's yeah you have little substations that'll make it possible yeah the frequency of these uh, particles are very important i think my imagine is that imagination is that if you have like a website or something on this quantum internet i don't know i don't think you can do that i'm not exactly sure but maybe you have you have to entangle in order to have a website, you gotta like get entangled and th- get the particle for that website <laughs> on your computer <laughs> to to access that website. Does that make sense? Uh, there'd have to be some kind of encryption or not encryption. I'm just trying to think. Because if you had that particle, it means that you would be able to edit it too if you could. Unless it's just a yeah, you you particle reception like some kind of a receiver. Yeah, and then there's no editing of it. That is it. a good point. I don't know. You could edit on both ends, unless like the consumer end is like only observing what's written on the website. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's like a browser version where you could only just observe what's written on it. But somehow you have to have 
then tangled particle on your computer so you could see what he put on his particle <laughs> and yeah so that's how i understand how the quantum internet will be if uh, you're trying to make a website <laughs> well I- i'm just thinking probably at first it'd probably be an internet that would be for like giant companies right it's not going to be for like everyday local internet blogger because they would need like maybe if you stream something it would be instantaneous or they want to preserve some archives and data database securely I don't think you'd have just like every I don't know it had to get down so the technology would have to be pat down to make it affordable for anyone to have just like quantum computer in their house or whatever it is <laughs> yeah i wonder if you could download or somehow create the particle and i don't know how you could maybe there's like a local substation where you like entangle it with your own or somehow you <laughs> And then you could put it in your computer, or I don't know. Maybe you could download or somehow make it locally and remotely entangle it somehow. I don't think you can do that. <laughs> but maybe in the future you can. And then you could have access so you don't have to manually bring the f- entangled particle into your computer. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's yeah, the very beginnings the beginning. of <laughs> the quantum internet. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of potential. Yeah, I think it's really good because if you had this quantum internet in your business, you don't have to deal with a bunch of memory. You don't have to deal with downloading stuff. You just have the the particle in the computer and whatever happens over there, it happens on here. You don't have to sync it up with internet and download and upload and all this stuff. Yeah. You just have to uh, set up a uh, some kind of quantum internet first before you can... Because uh, it's light still. You still have to set up some kind of mirror setup. So, I mean, I guess the initial setup might be really expensive, but afterwards it's, like, done. You don't need to worry about monthly bills, I don't think, since it's, it's not through electricity or anything. It's just, like, a particle... <laughs> yeah, it is a particle. You don't need to have any connection between these two particles. You don't have to have an Ethernet cable. You don't have to have uh, fiber optics between them. It's just the two entangled particles. If you do something to one, the same thing happens to the other. Uh, that's how I understand. <laughs> Maybe it's wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. He said something about uh, they could use the fiber optic lines somehow. I'm not exactly sure, but that's how I understand it. <laughs> well, fiber optics is light, and if you have to interact with these particles with light, it could work somehow, I guess. Yeah. One thing that uh, Eden Figueroa did 
he made this whole table showing how all these mirrors work together and stuff. But he was able to compact it down into a transportable box. All of his equipment to make um, entangled particles and sending uh, qubits to send, write a message. He was able to put it all into a box. It's kind of a small box, maybe. Uh, yeah. It's not that small, maybe like <laughs> five feet tall and the two feet wide or something. But he was able to take that machine and drive it to the, the Brookhaven National Lab and install another quantum computer that will receive the data from the other entangled particle. Yeah. Smaller than what the first computers were. Nice. <laughs> yeah, have you ever seen the quantum computers? Um, I just know they're just a, I'm assuming it's just a, a giant stack of like a rack of servers and No, quantum computers look on. so cool. They look like a chandelier. It looks really cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so that's what I have to say. Yeah, it sounds yeah like a lot to uh, process. <laughs> Do you have any questions? No. I <laughs> I think uh, once you learn more about it and develop a system, probably hear more about quantum internet. Yeah, it's kind of fun to do a deep dive and learn about physics and quantum physics and stuff. I yeah. thought it was funny how... Quantum physics is... Uh... <laughs> what, what were you going to yeah. say? I'm just saying quantum physics is like... So it's like a different language. You have to learn the terminology and what each what the protocols all do, and yeah, it's it's a lot. Of, it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought it's funny how the crystal is kind of key to make entangled particles, <laughs> like how in a lot of recent uh or maybe i don't know which final fantasy game but it is the lat there's some final fantasy games talking about crystals doing these things <laughs> like you're being able to teleport with the crystals yeah. and stuff yeah it's 14 is the one that does that the most yeah i read about something about time crystals which is like a new state of matter that basically repeats itself not only in space but also in time so it could be a way to a uh, potential solution to time travel because it doesn't move it doesn't lose any energy hmm. so i don't know it could be some quantum uh computing uh potential in that also is it a crystal uh it's a type of crystal but it's a form of matter hmm. Yeah, I Crystals don't know if it could be used. by itself it only re- only repeat it repeats only in space where time crystal repeats also in time. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't think it's possible, but if you make a some glass or something, it, it could be stuck. A, a light particle can be stuck in glass or maybe a crystal or something. But I, I don't I don't know much about what what uh, you could do with <laughs> with that. Yeah, I just know they, they've barely been able to uh, observe some kind of interaction between two time crystals. 
But uh, I have no idea what it is. So I haven't. <laughs> I have nothing to say about yeah, it. Yeah, we are talking about something that we have no no clue what we're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, but um, I I am an expert now of what uh, <laughs> operating systems are used in spacecrafts. Yeah. Yeah, recently, uh, within the last year, the ESA, which is the European Space Agency, they launched a new kind of satellite observer called the Solar Orbiter. And it will... Basically, what its job is to... It's going to get within 10 million... uh, Oh, it says it will get 10 million kilometers closer to the sun than Mercury. And in being such a range, it is important to protect it from any kind of overheating, damage, because even on Mercury, you have to sustain temperatures reaching more than 450 Celsius. Um... So they have on this a solar orbiter. They have heat shields that protect that protect the spacecraft, but only when it's pointing at the sun directly. There's not enough protection on the side or the back of the probe. So the ESA had to develop a real-time operating system, or OTOS, and. Uh, so that the maximum allowance of off-pointing is only 6.5 degrees. Anything over that exceeding 2.3 is acceptable. But when it gets uh, off, they only have 50 seconds to react. <laughs> so an operating system has to be able to reboot and fix whatever they need within 50 seconds. And the guy, the person they interviewed, Maria Hoenig, she's the head of flight software systems at the ESA, says it's uh, extremely demanding requirements for this mission. Typically rebooting this platform such as this takes roughly 40 seconds. Here we've had 50 seconds total to find the issue, have it isolated, have the system operational again and take recovery <laughs> action. In 50 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, the operating system needs to remotely reboot and recover in 50 seconds or it's fried. <laughs> oh, that sounds very difficult. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you can imagine. you would, These operating systems in uh, space are extremely customized and tailored to their functions um, and they're always almost always run by real time operating systems and uh, yeah it's different from an operating system you'd think on your computer where they do computation and uh in space, they have usually like central criteriums 
that they have to do certain tasks um, in a specific deadline. And then once it's done, it can do something else. Um, but it's very precise. You can't... Everything is, like, in a very rigid manner. You can't have it, like, take longer. It has to be a very reliable, like, system. You can't have any variations at all. Because, like, in the first example in this new orbiter, it would be fried if it took a few more seconds. Mm-hmm. So... The time is divided by the clock is divided into singular ticks. So each task takes a allocated amount of ticks. So it can take three ticks to upload data from sensors, four further ticks to fire up engines, and so on. Each possible task is assigned a specific priority. So a higher priority task takes precedence over a lower priority task. And this way, a software designer knows exactly which task is going to be performed first in any designed, any given scenario, and how much time it's going to take to get it done. Sometimes we compare operating systems, right, like on a iPhone or like a Samsung S20 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Samsung, let's say in this example, they give like Samsung opens all the apps in two minutes and thirty seconds. And the iPhone clocks in at 2 minutes and 54. (laughs) But in the second round, the apps are closed and opened again without restarting and clearing the RAM. But because the apps are in RAM, the Samsung finishes in 46 seconds and the iPhone does it in 42. So that's a 2-minute difference in the first try and and the second. If the phones had the the kind of real time process uh real time operating system used for space flight, opening those apps would take exactly the same amount of time, no matter how many times you tried it, down to a millisecond. Hmm. So So can you explain what a real time operating yeah. system means? Uh I I kinda did already. It's basically you have tasks right and they are all prioritized in different levels you will have a task that is set to be higher or lower so if you have like a queue let's say of things lined up it will first go to the highest and go down because if you're working on a lower one and you have to an example of the solar orbiter, if you have to move this, it's gone off pointing at the sun by 5.3 degrees or greater than the allowance of 6.5, then within, if you're having the lower things finished first and it doesn't work on those uh, higher priority, it's going to fry up and your project is done for. So that's the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> so a real time thing does everything uh like it says there's no there's basically no RAM, right? Everything is executed in a priority uh manner. Hmm. 
the operating system that NASA has started to use, starting with uh, the Apollo days, they use some custom-built uh, operating systems. Some of the codes will be used, and then they're used for a Skylab and pro a subtle project, for instance. But everything was done from scratch, and eventually NASA came from came to this solution from Wind River. It's a company based in Alameda, California. Mm-hmm. And it's a four, fully operational, commercial, off-the-shelf, real-time operating system called VX, VX Works back in 1987. It wasn't the first kind of this system, but it was the most widely deployed. So, like, NASA was interested in using it. And they used it... The first mission they used it in was in the uh, Clementine Moon probe in, in the 1990s mm -hmm. since this is after the Apollo program it was more of uh, NASA had to start doing things in leaner develop more quickly in a tighter budget mm -hmm. and yeah they found that VX works worked good enough so they used it for the Mars Pathfinder mission Hmm. Yeah, they pretty much reworked it. But the the most important thing about the VX works is it has a wind micro kernel that is able to do task scheduling with 256 levels of priority. Both preemptive and non-preemptive round Robin scheduling is supported along with all communication between tasks. So in this uh, operating system, there's four states in the tasks. There's ready, when it's a state of a task that when it's started. From there, it can either run until it's done or until a specific amount of time uh, for running. The second task is a blocked state. So it gets preempted by another with the task with a higher priority in, or until the allotted number of ticks has run out. The third option is delayed. So it waits for resources in the case of a uh, maybe the pathfinder needs some kind of data samples from a sensor. And then uh, the last one is suspended. Basically it saves, it's like a state of suspended it saves the registered and task contacts while it stopped for debugging. Hmm. That's interesting. So with these aircrafts, they kind of run themselves and you can't always be in control of it. You have to communicate to it when it's ready. Is that right? Well, you have it working its job, right? Maybe what it's done maybe it like gets into a ruckus in a hole or something whatever it's doing is going to get interrupted by a higher thing to get it back and rebooted back into its normal state mm -hmm. you still you can still communicate it with it oh um so it's just more autonomous and it's doing its own thing yeah it's a real time though so it's not much like there's computing 
but it's uh, more task oriented. It's not like crunching numbers and stuff. It's sending back information and getting things done. <laughs> One of the things is intertask communication in VX works that what they call it is through semaphores. They compare it and relate it because of semaphores you think of a train um, which are like binary four or empty so when it's four in this uh, operating system means it started a task and it's available for a task empty ones are un unavailable so when you start a task it becomes empty and is it unavailable to work but there is a third type that's called the mutual exclusion, called mutex. So when it starts a task, it, st it starts it um, as full. And it takes a task and making it unavailable to all other tasks until it's done with whatever it's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, they have a story. It's interesting because... They had a a quote bug on it, but it wasn't due to VX works. It was a human error. Mm -hmm. There was a bug that basically for a few seconds between doing tasks, it would start working on a medium priority task instead of doing a high <laughs> priority task. And uh, when the Mars Pathfinder got there, it had to reboot several times. And to solve the problem, it took them 18 hours to get it to run normally. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, like, I guess it it was a very, it's a very thing that this happened. So, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's um, stuck on a... A medium priority and it is rebooting itself over and over and over and over. <laughs> and I bet the people repairing yeah. it didn't have very long to put in their message or code or whatever to fix it from rest in between restarting. <laughs> pretty, mm -hmm. I don't know, you have to figure it out and then you have to time it somehow to get the message inside there while it's rebooting. <laughs> it sounds really hard. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so VX works is the preferred uh, operating system for spacecrafts or NASA. For ESA, they found their own. Of course, the uh, the U EU is. I would say they usually have a better solution. Mm -hmm. They developed their own open source RTEMS which uh, in the first days RTEMS was initially just for missiles used from the US operating system they had and they found that it was able to be used more not, not just for guiding missiles real time because of course the <laughs> The old RTOSs were too slow, so they had to custom build one. And 
after they realized they can use it for more than just missiles, the U.S. changed it to be a real-time executive for military systems. Then the EU loved uh, this operating system because VX works in had that proprietary system where they couldn't change anything. So it wasn't as customizable. Whereas the RTXCM, they could basically change their purpose to whatever they're working on without having to pay a ton of money and have the U.S. custom make new systems and stuff. So it was cost uh, effective. Hmm. And since uh, they were able to use it for more than just military purpose, they also changed the name of it and called it Real-Time Executive for um, Multiprocessor Systems. <laughs> and they worked it to be used on Spark Leon radiation hardened chips for space missions. And uh, of course it had the same priority base scheduler with 256 levels same round robin scheduling method available but uh, instead of just being single processor you can use multiple processing yeah and if you don't like what the scheduling algorithm is you can just make your own so they, they were very happy with that they invested a lot of time into making it what they call the software criticality uh, level B, which is the second highest level of uh, software reliability recognized by the agency. Basically, uh, it's for critical, where if it failed, it would be a critical uh, consequence. Mm-hmm. Whereas the first one, the level A, <laughs> the failures are catastrophic. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the article would be like, Maybe it'd be like the ISS, the International Space Station, like crashing down on like England or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't really mention anything. So, with the real time operating system on the missions, they sometimes they would even use both the VX works and the RTMs at the same time. One of the developer, not the developer, one of the Maybe, yeah, developers. Basically, he used a VX works for a certain instrument in a spacecraft where they had the RTXCM for everything else. Yeah, that's one of the systems. And another uh, operating system is pretty interesting. It has to do with uh, uh, blockchain. <laughs> this is a real deep dive. <laughs> so back in... Yeah, back in 2013, he talked with... Uh, Bitcoin developer, core developer Jeff Garzik. Mm-hmm. Basically, he wanted to have some Bitcoin resilience in space. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because they wanted to have a decentralized uh, system to use on these like micro satellites they're sending up. Yeah. And he was going to use these nano satellite ro- uh, rotations but they wanted to have it all connected between each satellite so they would store and broadcast uh, blockchain data mm-hmm. 
and he called it Space Chain. So it's designed for, he calls it a self-healing mesh net, uh, network of multiple satellites that could uh, route around hardware and spacecraft failures. We were looking at a sort of cloud computing model, many plus cheap, where you can make up for uh, failures with software. So his idea was to get the space chain OS on all these satellites. And uh, it could be used for more than one just, uh, more than one company. Um, the, re- the reason why uh, Space Chain OS was better than like using Linux or something is because uh, the OS it used was based on uh, Silix OS. And they used it in China for different military and space applications. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Compared to the Linux kernel, it was five times smaller. <laughs> so instead of five million lines of code in the kernel, it's only one million. So with all these micro satellites being sent up, it'd uh, probably be cheaper and easier to fit into such small satellites. The other key is that the blockchain component makes it easy uh, and possible for crowdfunded satellites to be sent up so he would like have the blockchain community uh they would work so it says to add a nod to the chain the space chain network you'd need to go through qualification process within the organization you're added to a whitelist then you can either pay space space chain to build your satellite, or you can do it your do it based on open source hardware, public st- standards, protocols, just like the internet. And then from there, he says that the organization needs to launch the satellite or leave the launching to space chain. And then uh, once the spacecraft is in orbit, they would just have to pay a registry fee in order to receive a blockchain con- smart contract that allows a new nod to uh, authenticate with other satellites in the network. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh the I get, the, huh? the um I can't really speak very well for the Bitcoin community, but they they want to be resilient from anybody being able to take out their nodes. So setting them up into space makes it a lot hard. You can't just send some fed <laughs> yeah. people to come and like rip apart your node and then you're done and then pretty soon the whole network is down because they're going around destroying these (laughs) nodes. But if it's out in the space, somehow you could, I don't know how you'd connect to it, but it'd be pretty easy to just write a little contract, spin it up, and it's part of the blockchain. So they're trying to make it so nobody could 
mess with it and any everybody can and anybody <laughs> can access it and do exchanges or um, transactions on the blockchain mm-hmm. yeah I think the functionality of the self healing mesh network sounds pretty uh, pretty neat though using blockchain to do that since um, basically blockchain has its own like ledger so everything that's happened is conserved and would be um, sent to each other satellite to keep it um, from malfunctioning and yeah <laughs> it would yeah it would be easy to fix if there was any issue it would just probably reboot or have something that keeps it uh, from falling and then just reboot the system and have it match another one that's working fine (laughs) (laughs) but they say that uh, Space Chain OS is probably not going to replace RTMS anytime soon because it doesn't provide any new functionality according to the ESA's Hernick the one that we mentioned uh, earlier Mm mm-hmm but he does admit that uh, ha- the thing that Space Chain has that's different from VXWorks or uh, RTMS is that it can the the satellites are available to multiple users at once. She says they say the multiple user functionality is something we don't have, and they are correct. A dual user system is the best we can manage at the moment. We've been experimenting with m- parts of a IMA, the Integrated Modular Avionics System that enables multiple aircrafts to work in a distributed network supporting different applications. That's a system used in the fourth gen uh, jet fighters. Um, So yeah, that's what they have that's better, I guess, because instead of having like only two people able to work on it or access to it, they have multiple users (laughs) that's uh, the main OS's that they use for satellites I guess there's a space chain OS Um, for any other more important observatory and some spacecrafts they mainly use VxWorks and NASA and the ESA uses uh, the ITMS and as I read the comments, it's interesting because one of the comments is from a guy that did some programming for the Clementine uh, Observer, the Moon project. He says he was able to patch the software and identify, like, use a sim library to identify loaded patches. Basically, they, like, fix something during its flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While I was in orbit, and we were able to fix it because VxWorks was able to, like, handle it and work well. And, uh, yeah, it convinced NASA to uh, use it all the way. (laughs) 
Yeah, one thing that I'm wondering about is if companies are able to use real-time operating systems or people are able to use real-time operating systems. Like if you have some, it might make sense in uh, like automated factories maybe if you have a real-time operating system. Like a assembly system. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. But it's not as, I wouldn't say it's as crucial. Maybe if it's in like uh, some dangerous material or some nuclear plant, it'd probably be used. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't want that nuclear stuff all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like these operating systems uh, are mainly designed for crucial tasks. <laughs> you don't want to like have it do like automated like baking at your local bakery to have all these things <laughs> figured out and start cooking your bread. Maybe if you like <laughs> if you're like super efficient and like you want everything done in like a specific time <laughs> and yeah that'd be crazy <laughs> Yeah, I like how there's 256 levels of priority. It gives you so many, like, layers of priority you can use and work with. I wonder if there's, like, any... I, I bet you there is at least 250 things, tasks that you might have scheduled in these spacecrafts. That's probably why they have two separate um, systems going on at once in some of these crafts. One just for, like... A specialized in- instrument while the other one's keeping the, the whole thing functioning <laughs> maybe it's like the brain you have one half making function and then the other is one's like the thinking mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh, definitely not Windows 95 or any <laughs> uh, it's not Mac OS, Mac OS or Linux version I mean, they're starting to use Linux more in, like, uh, space applications to manage uh, lower-level functionality and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's free. You don't have to pay for expensive licensing. Like, that's why they started to use, like, RTMS. They didn't have to, like, get the VXWorks and... It's more affordable. I thought it was uh, interesting because when I looked up the budget that ESA had, it was like 6.6 billion euros per year. But that's for the whole, like, European space agency. That includes everything in Europe that's in the Union, I'm assuming. All the programs, of salary, everything. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's not as much as, like, other space uh, agencies, like, NASA, I looked up, they have a $22 billion um, budget. Wow. And in Euros, that's $16 billion. So they have like double the amount, more than double the amount that the ESA has per year. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear much about uh, the, the European countries sending many spacecraft and stuff out into space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, my thing. Do you have any questions? 
No. Thoughts about it. I think it's funny how we had only two topics and it's like basically the same length <laughs> as the normal podcast. <laughs> yeah, these the articles are like <laughs> three pages long and have a whole spacecraft history included. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be the the fun uh, interesting episode <laughs> get to really learn and think of things that uh, not uh, what would normal people think about <laughs> yeah you know, yeah like a real time uh, operating system what is yeah. that no what's an entangled protocol <laughs> you doing in my internet hmm. oh thank you for listening and doing your research seems like you did your research a lot faster than me or I, yeah i don't know how long it took you but it was it was fun to learn um probably like 20 minutes i read the whole article and had to digest it for a little bit and i looked up some bitcoin uh, <laughs> blockchain terminology <laughs> so i could actually understand a little bit more of why you'd want to use space chain os uh and then I looked up uh, what the ESA was because I didn't even mention what the ESA was. <laughs> so I looked that up. It's a European Space Agency. Obviously, you're supposed to know that <laughs> without <laughs> without any like explanation of what the ESA is. And I had to look up and because I was skimming the article trying to understand everything, but they only mentioned these acronyms like once in the article so i had to be sure i like read it backwards each paragraph trying to figure out and then went forwards again and i found it every part i needed to uh figure out what they were doing so yeah it took took me a longer read than the usual articles i (laughs) uh have what are we gonna do what are we gonna say when we're not gonna do the talk later it's uh, it's the talk to you later show. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess uh, <laughs> talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>